We are in Acts 14, and Paul and Barnabas have already been to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and several other cities. And some of the things we notice that are common to their visits to these cities are that one, they preach the gospel wherever they go, and secondly, they almost always meet opposition. It's always somebody coming up against them, and typically, those are Jewish religious leaders. And so we're going to read in Acts 14 today about idols and other sacred cows to avoid when it comes to ministry. So let's all stand as we take a look at Acts 14. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, and he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. He sprang up and began walking. Well, we know that this takes place in Lystra, and it's about 18 miles southwest of Iconium. If you can check on the map, uh, you can see that. It was not a major city. It was a, a military outpost for Rome. In fact, Many commentators think it was kind of almost like a retirement place where a lot of Roman soldiers would, would hang out, surrounded by mountains. Uh, we also know that fair degree of certainty that there was no Jewish synagogue in this city, so very few Jews were there. But what was common was a pagan idolatry that was in place in this region during this time. Now, Luke puts a special emphasis on the extent of the man's infirmities that's healed. We hear in verse 8, he was sitting, he could not use his feet, he was crippled from birth, and he could not walk. All of those are basically saying the same thing, that this man was severely handicapped. Now, this setup is important to establish the fact that these handicaps were real. This is not some trumped-up miracle by some slick-haired televangelist showboating about miracles that cannot be verified. Aren't we all sick of such a thing? The guys had, uh, had a genuine handicap. And the reason that the miracle got such a reaction is probably because the people there were familiar with this man and knew that he was handicapped since birth. 
And verse 9 says that he didn't just hear Paul, but the Greek word means that he listened intently. He was hanging on every word. And it says that Paul fixed his gaze. He was staring at him, and he told the man in a loud voice to stand up. So there's a, there's a confidence about Paul that's exhibited here. You know, he didn't, he didn't whisper in his ear and say, hey, would you mind helping me out and maybe just stand up a little bit? You know, if you need to lean against the wall, go ahead, but just try to stand up, okay? No, that's not what he said. He said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man leapt to his feet leaving little doubt of the effectiveness of God's healing power. Now, there's a wonderful combination of characteristics just by a, a cursory view of this passage. You have this confidence in God's ability to heal that Paul exhibits, and yet we see later in the passage a humility of Paul being unwilling to take upon himself attributes or praise for something that he didn't do. All right? He's unwilling to take credit for what was obviously the work of God. This wasn't a, a fake humility to where, you know, behind the scenes he was arrogant. No, it was genuine. He knew that God could heal. He recognized the source, and he had complete confidence in God, right? And that was combined with this humility. It's cool to see that, that combination. Wave Nunnally in his commentary on Acts says, the question is simple. Do we trust more in our faith or do we trust more in the faithfulness of God? Some people have faith in faith. You know, if you only have faith, you can do this, 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 and this. And Wave Nunley says, one is sanitized man-centeredness. The other is true biblical Christianity. We're also compelled to notice where Paul starts this ministry in Lystra. Notice he doesn't, like usual, go to a synagogue because we assume there is none here. None is mentioned. Paul heals a man, and he speaks. And we're not given the exact words that he uses, but we assume he's in the public square because we know that a great crowd uh, gathered and, and responded. And by speaking out in the open and healing a man right off the bat, this is kind of a different methodology that he's using. Now, missionaries have a term in which they use, which is the contextualization of the gospel. It's a fancy way of saying that we will adjust our methodology in order to fit a particular culture. It doesn't mean that we change our message, right? It doesn't mean that we water it down to make it more palatable. It doesn't mean that we throw the Bible under the bus, but what it means is the methodology can change so that people can listen. We, we take, for instance, in consideration the manners and customs of a people. And so it's not compromise to change methodology. And we do well to understand this, or the difference between the methodology and the message, because some people cannot see that difference. And what they do is they get themselves in trouble and they see everything as kind of an absolute, you know, including, you know, what to wear or what kind of music or just a variety of things. And they equate that with basically, you know, the virgin birth and the resurrection of Christ. And you can't compromise these things. But that is, 
I think that's being wrong-headed about it. Uh, Paul actually said that he was going to become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. It's another way of say, saying that he was willing to change his methodology depending on the people that he was ministering to so that he could communicate well. I think that's why many denominations are dying because they have fused their traditional methods with the message and they see change as compromise. And that's a problem. So here are some questions I'd like to throw out that I think all of us really need to consider and think about as a church and as a, as a Christian community. Number one is, what is it in the Christian culture that really has nothing to do with fostering a genuine relationship with God? And yet we're always doing it. What is that? What sacred cows do we cling to that have no biblical support? What do we do in the Christian community that is more about control instead of equipping people to look to Christ and trust the leading of the Holy Spirit? I don't see it as my job to try to dictate for you every single lifestyle choice, but I believe that you have a relationship with God that you need to go to the Lord and, and learn and, and study. You know, is this good for me? Is this not? I could give an opinion, but it's just that. It's not gospel. So these are questions that I think, if we don't think in these ways, we realize that great conflict can exist. And as I look back upon my experience of 30 years here as a pastor, most conflicts could be traced back to this, that it includes myself and others, that we did not distinguish between the human ways of doing things and a biblical precedent. A tradition is not bad. There are some traditions that point us to Christ. But here's a danger that Jesus pointed out. He said plainly, so for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. I mean, are we really willing to set the word of God aside? I remember having this question once when I heard of a church suing another church. I'm like, no, no, wait a minute. Even though that may have been done before, isn't there something in the scripture about suing other believers? All right. Uh, does that matter? Or are we just going to do these things because we can? The mission of the church, listen, is not about protecting our territory. Listen to this story. Uh, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, how dare he be with these dirty people, right? Not like us here. He told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's another way of saying 99 people who don't see their need. I'm not pointing the finger at you and saying that, but I'm just saying our focus should be about the people that are not here in this building, ministering in the community, the one that we go after. We're to focus our efforts on the ones who must be found. In fact, we, are, we get equipped, hopefully, here 
so that we're better out there, right? And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices and said in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So the crowd has basically got themselves into a frenzy as they cry out, the gods have come down to us, speaking of Paul and Barnabas. Now, when Luke says that Paul was being called Hermes and Barnabas was Zeus, I think it's cool to point out that archaeologists have found a number of inscriptions and altars in this area that are devoted to Zeus, as well as a, a list of priests to Zeus. Again, pointing out the accuracy of Luke's account, who, by the way, was a medical doctor and was very good with details and eyewitness accounts. Now, the fact that the missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, did not recognize initially what was going on indicates to us that they could not uh, understand the language that they were speaking initially. But obviously, these people were bilingual because they could understand Paul when he was preaching. Now, the legendary history of Lyconia uh, can shed light for us about this because the, the, the people around here told a story about Zeus and Hermes who had come to earth in disguise, they said, and no one was hospitable, hospitable to them except for two uh, old peasants. So as a result, these two gods wiped out the, the people that they uh, had visited and just allowed these two old peasants to live, who later attended to an impressive uh, temple, and then when they died were turned into two great trees. So when Paul healed the crippled man, the people assumed that these two were gods, and what they were thinking is, Let's not make the same mistake that people made before. Now, Barnabas, most people assume, probably looked older, so they called him Zeus, who was the king of the gods, and Hermes, who was the messenger of the gods. Paul fit that role because he was the one speaking. Verse 13 says, And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. So, I mean, they are really doing this up with quite a festival. The priests at the local temple had made these arrangements to offer a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas as a way to honor them as gods. The oxen were led to the temple, decorated with garlands of wool and ready to be slain and offered in sacrifice. And when the apostles realized what was happening, they tore their clothes in protest. Verse 14 says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by uh, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, I scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. The tearing of one's clothes was something that we've seen throughout Scripture. For instance, 
one of Joseph's brothers. You might remember, remember when his brothers threw him in a pit in Genesis, and in Genesis 37, 29, one of his brothers goes back to the pit and doesn't find him there. And so he, he tears his clothes. He was upset. He was mourning the loss of his brother. And in Joshua 7, 6, when Israel was defeated by Ai, Joshua tore his clothes and fell on his face before God. So one can tear their clothes when mourning or a sense of extreme distress. So I've had a lot of tearing of clothes this season with the Broncos playing football. Um, In the case of Paul and Barnabas, it was a strong aversion to blasphemy or being esteemed as a god before the people. You know what I love about this is that there was such a, a passionate response to people venerating him. And he's saying, stop it. You know, I think of, okay, now, when can I remember me being passionate about, no, 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 please, don't give me that praise. No, I can't hear that. Think about it. When have we done that? And Paul reasons, just like men, we're no different than you. Listen, it's one of the great temptations, even though most today wouldn't be venerated as a god, but I think people will create this image in their mind of their spiritual leaders that doesn't quite fit reality. It's, a, it's evil because it's making people out to be something they're not. And by the way, leaders are responsible and people are responsible, right? Both. You're responsible not to put people up on a pedestal. I'm responsible to filter these things with with great humility. And here's the temptation, I suppose, is that leaders want to be adored and people want to prop up their heroes. We have to be very careful in this regard because we can't let the naked ego get in the way. Why do people do that? Why do we prop up our heroes? Does it give us a sense of comfort, a a sense of, of safety? What is it? Respect is good. Nothing wrong with respecting our leaders, right? But, but respect is based on reality. It's earned through a long period of time. But it's, it's, it's extremely unhealthy if we are in a spiritual community where it's you know, not kosher to talk about weaknesses or not kosher to address the weaknesses, perhaps, in a leader. That's why leaders need to be held accountable, right? This leader is thankful for having elders that are that, are that way, having a wife who's not at all impressed by me and will, and will, and will tell, me, tell me truth. And I don't mean that that she's overly critical, but just she will tell me the truth, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. Or having friends that I can go to and will, be, and will be honest. These are very valuable things. But it's unhealthy to have a culture in which we act like, you know, a leader won't have weaknesses. Now, Believing the best in somebody, I think that's fine. But that's different than being naive when it comes to questions about spiritual leaders or holding them accountable or thinking they just can't possibly be arrogant because any of us can. Maybe it's the reason God allows conflict. And if you look at the Apostle Paul, he had plenty of conflict. 
I mean, you think of his background and all that he came from, the tremendous education as a you know, Pharisee of the Pharisees and sitting under Gamaliel and all this. And it's like, I mean, the guy could have very easily had a big head about all this. But God, man, was just like hammering him and allowing all this conflict to come up. Do you ever think that maybe the conflict that you receive or you go through is a way for God to humble you and to realize that maybe you're not the hot stuff that perhaps you think you are, to realize your complete dependence upon Christ. Rejection perhaps can prepare us for ministry. I mean, he must increase and I must what? Decrease, yeah, yeah. You wanna pray for me? Pray that I decrease. Pray that Christ increases. Remember Herod Antipas, okay? A little tidbit I'll give you. I would rather not to be eaten by worms in public like Herod Antipas. And why was he? Because he accepted this adoration that, hey, look at me, I'm a God. So both the crowd was wrong in doing that and Herod Antipas was wrong in receiving it. Paul, on the other hand, and Barnabas, stop this very dramatically. Spiritual leaders in every age can succumb to the temptation to be venerated, but we need to learn to follow the example of Paul and Barnabas here. Not embrace it. Stop it. Run from it. I think of things that can kind of muddy the waters, that can kind of be idols for us in ministry. Money, for instance. Money gives maybe temporary comfort, but it becomes a false measurement for ministry. By the way, as well as buildings and the amount of people you get. Those are, those are not the complete picture of what is success. There's pride that can easily set in. We can yearn for the accolades. There's the lust of the flesh. A man or a woman can think that they can do whatever they want without any consequences, without being held accountable. Listen, if you do not have people around you who you give the freedom to ask you the tough questions, you know, like if you're a guy, have you been into porn the last 30 days? Are all your financial dealings up to date? Questions like that. And then the very last question ought to be, have you just lied to me, all right, or have you told me the truth? Okay. These are the kinds of questions that we need to give people the freedom to ask. Now, I realize you can't have that with everybody, but there's a select number of people that we can have around us that we give the freedom to ask those questions so that um, we, can be, we can be honest and, and vulnerable. So, lust of the flesh. The other, and perhaps this is the greatest of all for leaders, is control. Controlling others gives people a sense of power, Right? And I think the way we do ministry can be very controlling or it can give people freedom. All these, I think, can be idols, temptations for anyone in leadership and particularly in ministry. So part of the message to these Gentiles was that they needed to turn from idols and follow the true God. And perhaps one way that we can show the frailty of worldviews is to gently demonstrate how short they fall in terms of dealing with the real problems of humanity, like sin, for instance. 
I mean, if you look at naturalism, deism, existentialism, postmodernism, nihilism, all of these, all of these have nothing to offer in dealing with the real sin problem that people have. The only answer to that is the sacrifice of Christ. So when, you, when you're able to demonstrate to people that, well, no, wait a minute, so what do you do with this? But the problem with that is without an answer, all these philosophies just come up short. Without the gospel, where do you go? It's like many of my students, when we go through the, uh, the worldviews, a common question is, is there anything worth believing? It's a great question. Is there anything worth believing? There's so much inconsistency out there. And then that's when you can say, well, you know, there is a guy who rose from the dead who died on a cross for our sins. And if that's true, I'll put my money there. In this situation here, we see Paul changing the conversation to talk to God, uh, talk to these people about God being the creator. And one of the reasons we can turn from idols is because we recognize God is the creator of all. You should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. I mean, how can you opt for some fake God when I am communicating to you about the real God who created the world, right? How can a reasonable person think that a world that's so intricately designed, a world that clearly had a beginning was made by anything other than an intelligent creator. If I find a watch in the bush, I don't surmise what a wonderful explosion in a metal factory that caused this watch to come about. I recognize that there was intelligence behind it. After a decade of research involving nearly 3,000 researchers, scientists had presented the first census of marine life, and the researchers discovered 6,000 new species that were added to the total number that were over a quarter of a million marine species. The scientists who worked closely on the project were constantly surprised and even stunned by, guess what, the diversity and the abundance of beauty. Now, what does that point to, huh? One of the vice chairs for the project said, uh, life astounded us everywhere we looked. The discoveries of new species and habitats both advanced science and inspired artists with their extraordinary beauty. Another amazed scientist said, the most surprising thing was the beauty. Our hearts pumped, or excuse me, our eyes pumped out of our heads in front of this beauty. And despite the deep awe and wonder, the researchers cautioned that at least 20% of the ocean's volume has yet to be explored. All this vastness and diversity and beauty was an accident or intelligently designed? I don't have a hard time making that decision. Dr. Michael Engor was a leading brain surgeon, an agnostic who had little use for religion. He was steeped in Darwinianism and Freud and felt that every time that he considered Christianity, it was stopped cold in its tracks by science. Engor was named one of the best doctors in New York. 
One of his specialties was in the treatment of hydrocephalus, or water on the brain. And while developing a theory of blood flow to the brain, his research took a surprising turn because he realized that the cranial system he was studying was like an ingeniously designed gadget, the filter that um, protects the delicate capillaries from the pulsating force of the heartbeat is a finely tuned mechanism like a vibration uh, dampers that, they're, that are used widely in, in engineering. In fact, Engor said this, most of what I needed to know was not in biology textbooks, but in engineering textbooks. And eventually, Engor realized that virtually all biological research operates with the presumption of design. And that presumption led him on a search and led him to faith in Christ as the grand designer. Because I either have to believe that this is all just happenstance or follow the breadcrumbs. There really is a designer. Romans 1 says the same thing, that this is the way that God has made it. So even a person who isn't religious can see that there's a God. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, and to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. I can't help but think, has Paul penned those words? Could he not have had Acts 14 in his mind, the events that happened there, worshiping the creation rather than the creator? Nature itself reveals the existence of God. The fact that God allowed the Gentiles to go their own way does not mean that they will not be held accountable. The mercies of God, Paul said in this sermon in Acts, are displayed by the rains. They're displayed by what the rain produces and, and the food that we have on our table. And do we really think that that our plates are full every day without a cook and without someone who produced the food? And though even their gods are fake, even pagan savages give thanks to their gods because there's something in them that acknowledges there's something beyond themselves. We do well to remember that the world is the garment of the Creator. And Paul, here when he arrives at the city in Acts 14, pointed to a man being healed, 
Then he pointed to the nature of God in creation. And how do you think that opened up their hearts to the gospel? That there is a resurrected Christ and you can have a relationship with the living Jehovah God. May God give us eyes to see. May he give us ears to hear of the opportunities that we get beyond these walls to connect the dots for our friends, to communicate the gospel in a winsome way to put the attention upon Christ.